It was four o'clock. <laughs> so I'll just have to wait for another couple of minutes. It is difficult sometimes when you're choosing suttas to read out because some of them have got parts of it which really inspired you and some have got you know, a lot of additional material which you know, is, can be inspiring for some people but can be just, oh, okay. And that's one of the reasons why to find a sutta which is great for everybody is always impossible. But this particular sutta today, the Mahasachika, it does actually uh, connect pretty well with yesterday's sutta. Oh, not yesterday, the day before, the Gatikara sutta. Because yesterday was no sutta at all. Yesterday was the, the emptiness sutta. The silent suitor. Okay, I think most of you are here now. Yeah, I think I think we can start. So this is uh, Mahasachika Sutta, and in this sutta in particular, it gives a description of the Buddha's path to becoming a Buddha. That's why it kind of fits with the Gatikara Sutta. This goes into far more detail. And it says some things which I have um, mentioned already in some of the explanations to your questions and some of the answers, so some of the other um, explanations to the suttas. So that's why I thought it would be quite useful. So you can hear it you know, from the sutta itself. So here we go. I'll say the Namo Tassa again because... Uh, I respect these suttas so much. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambodasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambodasa Namo tasa bhagavato Alahato Sama Sambuddhasa. So this is the 36th Sutta in the middle length sayings. Uh, this is called the Greater Discourse to Sachaka. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Buddha was living at Vaisali in a great wood in the hall with the peaked roof. Now on that occasion, when it was morning, the Buddha had finished dressing and taken his bowl and outer robe, desiring to go into Vesali for alms. Doesn't matter how famous you were, it's always his practice to go for alms food. Even when he went to visit his father uh, in Kapilawatu as a monk, his father was quite upset. You're my son, I'm a king, I own this place, and you're going for arms like some beggar? And the Buddha actually said that's uh, the job of a Buddha. Then as Sachaka, the Jain, was walking and wandering for exercise, he came to the hall with the peaked roof in the great wood. The venerable Ananda saw him coming in the distance and said to the Buddha, Venerable sir, here comes Sachika the Jain, a debater, a clever speaker, regarded by many as a saint. 
He wants to discredit the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. It would be good if the Buddha would sit down for a while out of compassion. The Buddha was about to go in arms. Round. So the Buddha sat down on the seat made ready. Then Satchakata Jain went up to the Buddha and exchanged greetings with him. When his courteous and amiable talk was finished, he sat down at one side and said to the Buddha, Master Gotama, there are some recluses and Brahmins. This is just a general name for those people who were the religious people uh, in that part of the world at the time. Who abide pursuing development of body, but not development of mind. They are touched by bodily painful feelings. In the past, when one was touched by bodily painful feelings, one's thighs would become rigid, one's heart would burst, hot blood would gush from one's mouth, and one would go mad, go out of one's mind. So then the mind was subservient to the body. The body wielded mastery over it. Why is that? Because the mind was not developed. But there are some recluses and Brahmins who abide pursuing development of mind, but not development of body. They are touched by mental painful feeling. In the past, when one was touched by mental painful feelings, one's thigh would, thighs would become rigid, one's heart would burst, hot blood would gush from one's mouth, and one would go mad and out of one's mind. So then the body was subservient to the mind. The mind wielded mastery over it. Why is that? Because the body was not developed. Master Gotama, it has occurred to me, surely Master Gotama's disciple abide pursuing development of mind, but not development of body. But, Agiwesana, that was just a term of... Uh, term of respect to um, Sachika. What have you learned about development of body? You say the Gautama's disciple, the monks and the nuns and the lay community develop the mind but not develop the body. So he asked Mahasachika, what do you know about development of the body? Well there are, for example, Nanda Vacha, Kisa Sankicha, Makali Gosala, these were other uh, religious people at that time. They go naked, rejecting conventions, licking their hands instead of washing them. It's a bad thing to do when it's COVID. <laughs> not coming when asked, not stopping when asked. They do not accept food brought or food specially made or an invitation meal. They receive nothing from a pot, from a bowl, across a threshold, across a stick, across a pestle, from two eating together, they don't accept from a pregnant woman, from a woman giving suck, from a woman in the midst of men, from where food is advertised to be distributed, from where a dog is waiting, from where flies are buzzing. They accept no fish or meat, they drink no liquor, wine or fermented brew. They keep to one house when they go on arms round, to one morsel or two houses, two morsels, or seven houses or seven morsels. They live on one saucerful a day, two saucerfuls a day, or seven saucerfuls a day. They take food once a day, once every two days, once every seven days, thus even up to once every fortnight. 
They dwell pursuing the practice of taking food at stated intervals. This is kind of ascetic practice. This is supposed to be uh, developing the body. But do they subsist on so little? Agivesana asked the Buddha. Uh, no, Master Gotama. Sometimes they consume excellent food, taste excellent delicacies, drink excellent drinks. Thereby, thereby they again regain their strength, fortify themselves and become fat. This is development of the body. <laughs> what they early abandoned, Agiwesana, they later gather together again. That is how there is increase and decrease of this body. But what have you learned about development of mind? When Satchika the Jain was asked by the Buddha about development of the mind, he was unable to answer. Then the Buddha told him, What you have just spoken as development of body, Akiwesana, is not development of body according to the Dharma in the Noble One's discipline. Since you do not know what development of body is, how could you know what development of mind is? Nevertheless, Akiwesana, as to how one is undeveloped in body and undeveloped in mind, and developed in body and developed in mind, listen and attain closely to what I shall say. Yes, sir, Satchika the Jain replied, and the Buddha said this. How, Akiwesana, is one undeveloped in body and undeveloped in mind? Here, Akiwesana, a pleasant feeling arises in an untaught ordinary person. Touched by that pleasant feeling, he lusts after pleasure and continues to lust after pleasure. That pleasant feeling of his ceases. With the cessation of that pleasant feeling, painful feeling arises. Touched by that painful feeling, he sorrows, grieves and laments. He weeps, beating his breast and becomes distraught. When that pleasant feeling has arisen in him, it invades his mind and remains because body is not developed. When that painful feeling has arisen in him, it invades his mind and remains because mind is not developed. Anyone in whom this, in this double manner a risen pleasant feeling invades his mind and remains because body is not developed and a risen painful feeling invades his mind and remains because mind is not developed is thus undeveloped in body because the mind is not developed. It is thus undeveloped in body and undeveloped in mind. I hope that's not too complicated for you because there's a lot of repetition. And how Agiwasena is one developed in body and developed in mind. Here Agiwasena a pleasant feeling arises in a well-taught noble disciple. Touched by that pleasant feeling, he does not lust after pleasure or continue to lust after pleasure. That pleasant feeling of his ceases. The cessation of that pleasant feeling, painful feeling arises. Touched by that painful feeling, he does not sorrow, grieve and lament. He does not weep, beating his breast and becoming distraught. When that pleasant feeling has arisen in him, it does not invade his mind and remain because the body is developed. When that painful feeling has arisen in him, it does not invade his mind and remain because mind is developed. Anyone in whom in this double manner arisen pleasant feeling does not invade the mind and remain because body is developed 
and a recent painful feeling does not invade his mind and remain because mind is developed, is thus developed in body and developed in mind. So it means here that when this painful or pleasant feeling arises, it doesn't invade his mind and remain, and that's called uh, developed in, uh, in body. And when the painful feeling arises, you don't get upset about it because your mind is developed. The pain and the pleasure which you feel through those five senses. You know, sometimes the Buddha gave another simile of the two thorns. The two thorns, he says, whenever there is an unpleasant feeling, it's like you're being um, stabbed by two thorns, the bodily thorn and the mental thorn. And he said, of those two, he said, the, the major uh, pain comes from the mental reaction to pain. I don't want this. Why me? This is unfair. Blaming somebody else. And that mental reaction to unpleasant feeling is the worst part of it. And that's why if the mind is not developed, it does mean that the bodily pain just can really sort of overcome you. And more my stories, you know most of these. But that time when I had a toothache, the first year of Wat Chan, and it was a really bad toothache, so bad I just couldn't sleep. So I tried meditating, washing my breath, impossible. I couldn't watch the breath. Was, my pain was exploding in my, my mouth. You went to the medicine cupboard. This was in those early days in Northeast Thailand. They had a medicine cupboard, but there's no medicine in it. It was empty. <laughs> it didn't help at all. So then I tried walking meditation, like I taught you over here, but I couldn't walk slowly. I was running. I was desperate. And I never believed in the chanting before. And then I never believed in it afterwards either, because that didn't work. <laughs> and the worst thing about it, because you we were desperate, and I was shouting the chanting. This was the middle of the night. And I thought, I'm going to wake everybody up. So you're in this wonderful position. I called it wonderful position carefully. You couldn't go forward. You couldn't go back. You couldn't stand still. What on earth are you going to do? And I was at my wit's end. How to deal with this intolerable pain. It's really weird how the pain gets worse at night time when there's no one around and nothing to do, and no escape. So that was when your back was against the wall, literally. So the only thing I could think of doing, what I'd heard many times before, let go. Those just words came up, two words very quickly, let go. And that was one of the first times my mind did that. It let go. And that was one of those amazing experiences you had as a monk, you heard that word, you've heard that word, I mean, how many hundreds of times or thousands of times? But you actually did it. And in an intolerable pain that was then replaced, honestly, by bliss. I felt so amazing, the pain had totally vanished and replaced by joy. You know, that sort of pleasure which I keep talking about, which comes in meditation. And I couldn't believe it. And so I just meditated for a bit longer. 
And then, of course, it was you know, one o'clock or something in the morning. The bell went at three. I think two o'clock I lay down, just have a little nap. And I woke up just before the bell and had a toothache, but it was just so mild. And you know, I had it, so I didn't go to a dentist because the dentist will probably do more damage to your teeth in that part of Thailand. So honestly, I just left it alone. It sort of healed up by itself after a while. But still, I couldn't believe just how letting go, that development of the mind, can get rid of pain so easily, if you know how to do it. Yeah, yeah, pleasant mind feelings, but the pleasant mind feelings, those are the experiences which you're supposed to develop. In other words, you allow those things to come in. Those are the pleasures. Sometimes you, you can listen to a Dharma talk, and sometimes that inspires the mind so much. You're not supposed to resist that. Be inspired in the mind. And then you can go and meditate and get really great meditations. And when you have the pleasure, the pity sukha, which is coming up even with the breath, please allow that to invade your meditation and remain. That will take you into the jhanas. I think maybe tomorrow there's another sutta, because I was in Bodhinyana yesterday afternoon. I just... Uh, downloaded the suttas I was going to do the next couple of days. And the next sutta will be on non-conflict, the Ranavibhanga Sutta. And there it says so clearly how you should distinguish the pleasure of the five senses from the pleasure of the sixth sense, the mind. Anyway, so, uh, I have confidence in Master Gotama. Uh, is, I have confidence in Master Gotama thus. Master Gotama is developed in body and developed in mind. Surely, Agiwesana, your words are offensive and discourteous. In other words, he just are using that praise to be offensive. But still, I will answer you. Since I shaved off my hair and beard, put on the yellow robe and went forth from the home life into homelessness, is the Buddha speaking, it has not been possible for a risen pleasant feeling to invade my mind and remain, or for a risen painful feeling to invade my mind and remain. Has there never arisen in Master Gotama a feeling so pleasant that it could invade his mind and remain? Has there never arisen in Master Gotama a feeling so painful that it could invade his mind and remained. Why not, Agiwesana? And this is where the Buddha starts to talk about his progress on the spiritual path. Here, Agiwesana, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, I thought, household life is crowded and dusty, Life gone forth is wide open. It is not easy while living in a home to lead the holy life utterly perfect and pure as a polished shell. Suppose I shave off my hair and beard, put on the yellow robe and go forth from home life into homelessness. 
There's a couple of important points there. First of all, whenever you see the word Bodhisattva uh, in the Pali Canon, in the suttas, it's always the same phrase, before my enlightenment, while I was still an unenlightened Bodhisattva. They always say in the Pali that Bodhisattvas are unenlightened. So later, while still a young, a black-haired young man, endowed with the blessings of youth in the prime of life, sometimes I look at those photos of me when I ordained, I was once a black-haired young man, endowed with the blessings of youth in the prime of life. Look what I am, how, what I become now. And they have here verses 13 to 16. This is where it describes the practices of virtue and simplicity and restraint, which the Buddha would practice. But anyway, we go now to um, paragraph 17. And these are very important uh, for the practice of deep meditation. Now these three similes occur to me spontaneously, never heard before. Suppose there were a wet, sappy piece of wood lying in water, and a man came with an upper fire stick thinking, I shall light a fire, I shall produce heat. What do you think, Agiwesana? Could the man light a fire and produce heat by taking the upper fire stick and rubbing it against a wet, sappy piece of wood lying in the water? No, Master Gotama. Why not? Because it's a wet and sappy piece of wood and is lying in water. Eventually the man would reap only weariness and disappointment. So too, Agiwesana, as to those recluses and Brahmins, who still do not live bodily withdrawn from sensual pleasures and whose sensual desire, this is the five senses he's talking about here, the sensual desire, affection, infatuation, thirst and fever for sensual pleasures has not been fully abandoned and suppressed internally. Even if those good recluses and Brahmins feel painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion, they are incapable of knowledge and vision and supreme enlightenment. And even if those good recluses and Brahmins do not feel painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion, they are incapable of knowledge and fe- fe- vision of, and supreme enlightenment. This was the first simile that occurred to me spontaneously, never heard before. Again, Agiwes, and a second similar, simile occurred to me spontaneously, never heard before. Suppose there were a wet, sappy piece of wood lying on dry land far from water, and a man came with an upper fire stick thinking, I shall light a fire, and shall produce heat. What do you think, Agiwesna? Could the man light a fire and produce heat by taking the upper fire stick and rubbing against a wet, sappy piece of wood lying on dry land far from water? No, Master Gautama, why not? Because there's a wet, sappy piece of wood still. Even though it is lying on dry land far from water, it's still wet and sappy. Eventually the man would reap only weariness and disappointment. So too, Agiwesna, as to those recluses and Brahmins who live bodily withdrawn from sensual pleasures, but whose sensual desire, affection, infatuation, thirst and fever of those sensual pleasures has not been fully abandoned or suppressed internally, even if those good recluses and Brahmins feel painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion, or they 
do not feel painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion. They are incapable of knowledge and vision and supreme enlightenment. This was the second simile that occurred to me spontaneously, never heard before. Again, Agiwasana, a third simile occurred to me. Suppose there were a dry, sapless piece of wood lying on dry land, far from water. As this is a piece of wood without the sap, it's dry, and it lies far from water. And a man came with an upper fire stick, thinking, I shall light a fire, I shall produce heat. What do you think, Agiwasana, could that man light a fire and produce heat by rubbing against the dry, sapless piece of wood lying on dry land, far from water? Yes, Master Gautama. So to Agiwasana, as to those recluses and Brahmins who live bodily withdrawn from sensual pleasures, whose sensual desire, affection, infatuation, thirst and fever for sensual pleasures has been fully abandoned and suppressed internally, even if those good recluses and Brahmins feel painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion, or even if they do not feel painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion, they are capable of knowledge and vision and supreme enlightenment. This was the third simile that occurred to me spontaneously, never heard before. This is one of those, in brief, of the three sticks. If you are right in the middle of sensory desire, it's difficult, you know, to get into deep meditation. But I must admit, it's not impossible. Some people fluke it. So I don't know why they sometimes press the letting go button and they do get into deep meditation, but it's really difficult. When you are away from the indulging in the five senses, and so you're both bodily and, uh, and uh, after a while, if you leave a wet stick you know, from the pond or the lake, you let it dry until it really is you know, very little moisture, then you can make a fire with it. That's like why you come to a retreat center. You get bodily withdrawn from the sensory pleasures. We have precepts here we have to keep. And after a while, you know, you start to dry out, metaphorically. It becomes easier for you to get into those deep meditations. That's why it is easier when you are bodily withdrawn and you kind of dry out and that's the same why we have these retreat centers surely you know you can go home and get these nice meditations but it's harder you have to rub that stick more and get it more and more dry and then it's easier to take the fire that kind of makes sense but it's not just being a lay person even some monks just get indulged in sensory pleasures and so they may be bodily withdrawn from the sensory pleasures, but they indulge in their mind. It makes it difficult to get into the deep meditations. But amazingly, I don't know why, but not impossible. Sometimes it's almost as if you get uh, fed up with the sensory world and you dry up pretty quickly and get a flame you know the word for burning, jayati, is almost the same as the word for meditating, the jhanas. That's one of the reasons why there's lots of similes between fire and deep meditation. Anyway, 
So I thought this is verse 20. I, I thought, suppose, with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrain, and crush mine with mine. So with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of the mind, my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed mind with mind. While I did so, sweat ran from my armpits, just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him, and crush him. So too, with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed mind with mind, and sweat ran from my armpits. But although tireless energy was aroused in me, and unremitting mindfulness was established, my body was overwrought and uncalm, because I was exhausted by the painful striving. But such painful feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. 21. I thought, suppose I practiced a breathingless meditation. So I stopped the in-breath and out-breath through my mouth and nose. While I did so, there was a loud sound of winds coming out of my ear holes. Just there was a loud sound when the smith's bellows are blown. So too, while I stopped the in-breath and out-breath through my nose and ears, there was this loud, loud sound of winds coming out my ear holes. But although tireless energy was aroused in me and unremitting mindfulness was established, my body was overwrought and uncalm because I was exhausted by the painful striving. But such painful feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. I thought, suppose I practice further the breathingless meditation. So I stopped the in-breaths and out-breaths through my mouth, nose and ears. I don't know how you actually do it through the ears, but anyway. While I did so, violent winds cut through my head, just as if a strong man were to crush my head with the tip of a sharp sword. So too, while I stopped the in-breaths and out-breaths through my mouth, nose and ears, violent winds cut through my head. But although tireless energy was aroused in me, and unremitting mindfulness was established, my body was overwrought and uncalm because I was exhausted by the painful striving. I thought, suppose I practice further the breathingless meditation. So I stopped the in-breaths and out-breaths through my mouth, nose and ears. While I did so, there were violent pains in my head, just as if a strong man were tightening a tough leather strap around my head as a headband. So too, when I stopped the in-breaths and out-breaths through my mouth, nose and ears, there were violent pains in my head. Well, although tireless energy was aroused in me, and unremitting mindfulness was established, my body was overwrought and uncalm, because I was exhausted by the painful striving. I thought, suppose I practice further the breathingless meditation. Son, you haven't read the sutta before you. You think, how can you go further with this? But anyway, what I did so, violent winds carved up my belly, just as if a skilled butcher or his apprentice were to carve up an ox's belly with a sharp butcher's knife. So too, while I stopped the in-breath and out-breath through my mouth, nose and ears, violent winds carved up my belly. I thought, suppose I practice further the breathingless meditation. So I stopped the in-breath and out-breath through my mouth, nose and ears. 
While I did so, there was a violent burning in my body, just as if two strong men were to seize a weaker man by the both arms and roast him over a pit of hot coals. So too, while I stopped the in-breath and out-breath through my mouth, nose and ears, there was a violent burning in my body. But although tireless energy was aroused in me and unremitting mindfulness was established, my body was overwrought and uncalm because I was exhausted by the painful striving. But such painful feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. Now when the heavenly beings, deities, saw me, some said, the recluse Gotama is dead. Others said, the reckless Gotama is not dead, he is dying. Another deity said, the reckless Gotama is not dead, nor dying, he is enlightened, for such is the way the enlightened beings abide. The devas, the deities, were not very smart. <laughs> I thought, the Buddha hasn't finished yet, Suppose I practice entirely cutting off food, fasting. Then deities came to me and said, Good sir, do not practice entirely cutting off food. If you do that, we should infuse heavenly, fu- heavenly food into the pores of your skin and you will live on that. I considered, if I complain to be completely fasting, while these deities infuse heavenly food into the pores of my skin and I live on that, then I shall be lying. So I dismissed those deities, saying there is no need. I thought, suppose I take very little food, a handful each time, whether of of bean soup or lentil soup, or veg soup or pea soup, so I took very little, a handful each time. When I did so, my body reached a state of extreme emaciation. Because of eating so little, my limbs became like the jointed segments of vine stems or bamboo stems. Because of eating so little, my backside became like a camel's hoof. Because of eating so little, the projections of of my spine stood forth like corded beads. Because of eating so little, my ribs jutted out as gaunt as the crazy rafters of an old roofless barn. Because of eating so little, the gleam of my eyes sank down in their sockets, looking like the gleam of water that has sunk far down in a deep well. Because of eating so little, my scalp shriveled and withered, as a green bitter gourd shrivels and withers in the wind and sun. Because of eating so little, my belly skin adhered to my backbone. Thus, if I touched my belly skin, I encountered my backbone. And when I touched my backbone, I encountered my belly skin. Because of eating so little, if I defecated or urinated, I fell over on my face right there. Because of eating so little, if I tried to ease my body by rubbing my limbs with my hands, the hair rotted at its roots, fell from my body as I rubbed. <sighs> <laughs> So that was kind of... Sometimes you've seen pictures of the Bodhisattva Gautama before he became a Buddha. He was actually so thin and just the bones protruding from his body. Now when people saw me, some said, the recluse Gautama is black. 
Other people said, no, the recluse Gautama is not black, he's brown. Other people said, no, the recluse Gautama is neither black nor brown, he's golden skin. So much had the clear, bright color of my skin deteriorated through eating so little. And I thought, whatever recluses or Brahmins in the past have experienced painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion, this is the utmost. There is none beyond this. And whatever recluses and Brahmins in the future will experience painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion, this is the utmost. There is none beyond this. And whatever recluses and Brahmins at present experience painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion, this is the utmost. There is none beyond this. But by the racking practice of austerities, I have not attained any superhuman states, any distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones. Could there be another path to enlightenment? I went through that quite quickly, as quickly as I could, because, yeah, it's a a nice piece of prose. Uh, It might have even happened, but it doesn't give you any inspiration, but it sets the scene for what happens next. You know, he did, apparently... Uh, eat so little for a while and just resisted the urge to look after his body what happened next? he hadn't got anywhere so in the Mahasattva Sutta verse 31 this is why I chose this Sutta I considered I recall that when my father the Sakyan was occupied while I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. This was when his father was doing that ploughing ceremony, which they do still do as a royal ceremony in Bangkok by the king of Thailand. Well, my father, Sakyam, was occupied, sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, quite secluded from the five senses, secluded from unwholesome states, I entered upon and abided in the first jhana with the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. The seclusion there was seclusion from the five senses. Could that be the path to enlightenment, to Bodhi? Then following on that memory came the realization that is indeed the path to enlightenment, the experience of the jhanas. And then, the next paragraph. I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures, the five senses, and unwholesome states? I thought, I am not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with the sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. Sometimes when that pleasure starts to arise in you, it brings a fear as well. It's quite big and huge and it's very hard to control. Actually, you can't control it, you just have to let it be. And that's where it sort of grows and develops into the jhanas. Why am I afraid of that pleasure? Many people think the only way to become enlightened is to go through pain. No pain, no gain, as many people say. But this was a pleasurable experience. How can that be the path? to ending suffering. But I thought it is. 
So he would not be afraid of that pleasure. The next paragraph. I considered it is not easy to attain that pleasure. It's possible, but not easy, with a body so excessively emaciated. Suppose I ate some solid food, some boiled rice and porridge, and I ate uh, porridge, and I ate some solid, some solid food, some boiled rice and porridge. Now at that time, the five, his five first disciples, called them bhikkhus, were waiting upon me, thinking, if our recluse Gotama achieves some higher state, he will inform us. But when I ate the boiled rice and porridge, the five bhikkhus were disgusted and left me, thinking, the recluse Gotama now lives luxuriously. He's given up his striving and reverted to luxury. Even now, people think China Grove is too luxurious. Why did I deliberately basically designed it this way? Everyone has an ensuite. You have nice beds. You know, you can have heaters, coolers. We try and make this as comfortable as possible. Good food. It's not perfect. But many people are surprised to come to a meditation center which is so comfortable. And that's why some people, if they don't know this sutta, Sometimes they leave and think, these disciples of Ajahn Brahm, these jhana groovies, that's what we call you. <laughs> you live luxuriously. And so you, um, you depart, thinking this is not the right place to practice. The people here revert to luxury. And that's an important part. The Buddha is actually saying that it can be done to get jhanas with a sick or an old or weak body, but it's not easy. It's much easier when you follow what the Buddha did. Now, when I, ha I had eaten solid food and regained my strength, then quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, I entered upon the body in the first jhana. But such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. With the stilling of the last, oh, and then, with the stilling of the last movement of the mind, I entered upon the bite in the second jhana. With the fading away, away, with the fading away as well of rapture, I entered upon the bite in the third jhana. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain, I entered upon the bite in the fourth jhana. But such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. When my stilled mind was thus purified bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbility. And that's after the jhanas. I directed it to knowledge of the recollection of past lives. I recollected my manifold past lives with their aspects and particulars. Many of them. And surely one which would have stood out was his life as Jyotipala under Kasapa. In the, in the lineage of so many lives, that was not that long ago. This, I recollected my manifold past lives with their aspects and particulars. This was the first true knowledge attained by me in the first watch of the night. 
Ignorance was banished and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished and light arose, as happens in one who abides diligent, ardent and resolute. But such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. When my still mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfections, malleable, wieldy, steady, attained to imperturbability, I directed it to the knowledge of the passing away and reappearance of beings. Thus with the divine eye which is purified and surpasses the human, I saw beings passing away and reappearing, inferior and superior, fair and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate, and I understood how beings pass on according to their karma. This was the second true knowledge attained by me in the middle watch of the night. Ignorance was banished and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished and light arose, as happens in one who abides diligent, ardent and resolute. But such pleasant feelings that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. When my stilled mind was thus purified, bright and blemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbility. I directed it to knowledge of the destructions of the asmas. Sometimes those are called taints. I prefer calling them outflowings, where the mind just goes out in the world, basically, to play. I, directed, I directly knew, as it actually is, this is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. These are the outflowings. This is the origin of the outflowings. This is the cessation of the outflowings. This is the way leading to the cessation of the outflowings. When I knew and saw thus, my mind was liberated from the outflowing of sensual desire, five senses, from the outflowing of being, you know, wanting to be, and from the outflowing of ignorance. These days I prefer delusion. When it was liberated, there came the knowledge it is liberated. I directly knew birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more coming to any state of being. Then this was the third true knowledge attained by me in the last watch of the night. Delusion was banished and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished and light arose, as happens in one who abides diligent, ardent and resolute. But such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. Akiwesana, I recall teaching the Dhamma to an assembly of many hundreds, and even then each person thinks of me. The recluse Gautama is teaching the Dharma especially for me. But it should not be so regarded. The Buddha teaches the Dharma to others only to give them knowledge. When talk is finished, Akawasena, then I steady my mind internally, quieten it, bring it to singleness, and still, still it on that same sign of stillness as before, in which I constantly abide. This is a matter about which Master Gautama can be trusted as an accomplished and fully enlightened one should be. This is Agawasana speaking. But does Master Gautama recall sleeping during the day? 
I recall Aggie Wasterman, the last month of the hot season, on returning from my arms round after my meal, I lay, on my, I lay out my outer robe folded in four, and lying down on my right side, I fall asleep mindful and fully aware. Ha ha! Some, I, I added, ha ha, that's not in the suitors. <laughs> Some recluses and Brahmins call that abiding in delusion, Master Gautama. And Buddha replies, it is not in such a way that one is deluded or undeluded, Agyavasana. As to how one is deluded or undeluded, listen and attend it closely to what I shall say. Yes, sir, Sashika the Dane replied, and the Buddha said this. Him I call deluded, Agyavasana, who has not abandoned the outflowings that defile being renewal of being, give trouble, ripening, suffering, and lead to future birth, aging, and death. For it is with the non-abandoning of these outflowings that one is deluded. Him I call undeluded, who, undeluded, who has abandoned the outflowings that defile, being renewal of being, give trouble, ripening, suffering, and lead to future birth, aging, and death. For it is with the abandoning of the outflowings that one is undeluded. The, uh, then, uh, oh, sorry, the Buddha, Agiwesana, has abandoned the outflowings that defile, being renewal of being, give trouble, ripening, suffering, lead to future birth, aging, and death. He has cut them off at the root, made them like a palm stub. In other words, they can't return again. Done away with them so that they are no longer subject to future arising, just as a palm tree whose crown is cut off is incapable of further growth. So too, the Buddha has abandoned the outflowings of defile, done away with them so they are no longer subject to future arising. So even the Buddha would take a nap if it was needed. Do you feel guilty about having a rest in the day? Do you? You shouldn't. The Buddha never did. When this was said, Sachika the Jain said, It is wonderful, Master Gautama, it is marvellous that when Master Gautama is spoken to offensively again and again, assailed by discourteous courses of speech, the colour of his skin brightens and the colour of his face clears as is to be expected by one who is accomplished and fully enlightened. I recall Master Gotama engaging Purana Kasapa in debate and then he prevaricated, led the talk aside and showed anger, hate and bitterness. But when Master Gotama is spoken to offensively again and again, assorted by discourteous courses of speech, the colour of his skin brightens and the colour of his face clears, as is to be expected of one who is accomplished and fully enlightened. I recall Master Gautama engaging Makali Gosala, Ajita Kesa Kambalin, Pakuta Kachayana, Sanjaya Balatiputta, and even the Nigantanata Puta, he was actually the head of the Jains, in debate. And when he prevaricated, led the talk aside and showed anger, hate, and bitterness. But when Master Gautama is spoken to offensively again and again, assailed by discourteous causes of speech, the colour of his skin brightens, and the colour of his face clears, as to be expected of one who is accomplished and fully enlightened.
And now, Master Gautam, we depart. We are busy and have much to do. Now is the time, Maggie Waysoner, to do as you think fit. Then Satchika the Jain, obviously he wasn't totally convinced. He didn't ask to become a monk. He just uh, praised the Buddha and then left. Then Satchika the Jain, having delighted and rejoiced in the Buddha's word, not that much, got up from his seat and departed. And the reason why I taught that long sutta again, to see just that episode of how the Buddha became enlightened when he remembered that first jhana as a young boy under the rose apple tree and recollected a long time later, you know, when he, just before he started properly eating again, I recollected that maybe that's the path to enlightenment. And the insight came, it was. And he gave up the fear of the pleasure of those states. Because had the idea, like even his five friends, the first five disciples, they were disgusted that he was eating again. How can he break through um, into enlightenment you know, by eating when he, you know, rather than through fasting? And then the Buddha described what happened next and also described what they call the Tewija, the three insights which ha happened to the Buddha the insight in recollecting his past lives, recollecting how karma works, and then recollecting or just breaking through the, um, the hindrances. Well, not all the hindrances, but they call them sometimes the taints, the poisons, uh, the arsals, the outflowings, and just understanding the Four Noble Truths. And then after that, he was the Buddha. That's how it's done. So you don't have to go through fasting and just torturing your body. I must admit that if you actually saw me in those first years in Thailand, I was extremely thin. You were torturing your body, getting up at three o'clock in the morning. I don't know why the mosquitoes came to get my blood. There was not much... Good goodness in that blood. <laughs> Badly nourished. <laughs> and you did that, but you got tired. You couldn't really break through to anything which was wonderful. But fortunately, you had a teacher who could inspire you. And later on, when the quality of food became better, and when you could learn how to uh, meditate better, a lot of times when you were by yourself, you can get some amazing meditations. And at that time, my thinness started to disappear. Because you were eating better and looking after your body. And so this is actually how those deep meditations happen. And of course, as the Buddha said, they lead to full enlightenment. I know you asked last night, Ajahn Brahm, are you fully enlightened? I'm not allowed by my vineyard rules to tell you, but that's not really good enough, is it? So some years ago, when I was in Sri Lanka, everyone's interested now, they know where I'm going. When I was in Sri Lanka, uh, there was a group of monks, forest monks there, 
And they asked me those questions. They said, Ajahn Brahm, can you enter jhana? And I couldn't use the excuse, you know, that you're lay people, I can't tell you. So I confessed. I told the truth. I said, it was actually someone had a video of this. I said, Ajahn Brahm, that's right. <laughs> I said, Ajahn Brahm cannot enter into jhana. Are you disappointed? Do you want your money back from the retreat? <laughs> Do you want to go outside, get your shoes and throw them at me? And some the monks knew me. They thought, hey, there's something going on here. And I said, Ajahn Brahm has to vanish first and then the jhanas happen. I don't enter them. That sense of self, which is, I know, is my knower and my doer, especially the doer, that has to vanish. You don't do the jhanas. You don't enter them. You disappear. And then the jhanas happen. And sometimes I realize, why did the Buddha put those rules down there? You're not allowed to say what you've attained. Because this is not about attainments. It's about you disappearing and letting go. Otherwise, those attainments you think you have, they're just pretty false. When you disappear and vanish. No will, no doing. That's called letting go. Big letting go. Years ago, I gave the simile of the hand. I think I might have told you this, but you know, I figured out when I became a monk, you know, I gave up sex because I was celibate. I had girlfriends before. So that was a hard thing to do, to give up that sensuality, but you had to give it up. So when I gave that up, then I got really concerned about food. Sometimes you had some nice food and you really wanted lots of it. It's like I was picking up something else to attach to. And so stop that. And then I started getting attached, amazingly, to Time magazines, written in English about what was going on in the world. And I just remember just once, I think after we finished the work, everything was prepared, and I was you know, reasonably senior, I remember having a bottle of Coca-Cola and a Time magazine. And I thought, life doesn't get better than this. <laughs> and then I realized, you give up one thing, you go attached to something else. And then I thought, why do I keep picking things up? And I realized that's what a hand does. It picks up things. You can't stop it. That's its nature to pick up things. So I thought the only way to stop picking up things is to cut off my hand. And I thought, what a brilliant simile that was. It's only a simile. You don't actually get a knife out and cut off your hand. You cut off the thing which attaches to things. Not what's out there, but the other part of your arm. Your mind, your craving, your wanting. And behind that was this sense of self. And I thought that was such a neat simile. I hadn't heard Ajahn Chah say that, I hadn't heard the Buddha say that. But then, I remember just reading through the Anguttara Nikaya, 
in Nepali and I came across the assembly of the hands and feet. <laughs> the Buddha got there before me. That was one of his similes. <laughs> I, I don't, there's no way I could have heard that or read that before in this life. But that was a beautiful simile. You will never be able to enter a jhana. You have to disappear first of all. Your sense of self and who you are, your controller and doer, which is where all the fear and attachment comes from. When that vanishes, it's easy. So I confess, Ajahn Brahm can't do it. I disappear first. Are you going to ask for your money back now? <laughs> okay, I think that's enough. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. It just reminded me of another one of these little stories. I just, it's, I've got one minute to go, so. There was, I don't know, that maybe 10 or 15, or no, 20 years ago or something, there were all these scandals of Thai monks, you know, uh, messing around, you know, having girlfriends, having children, and many of them got exposed. So one evening, over in Dhammaloka, in the main hall on a Friday night, I started my Dhamma talk that evening. I said, you've probably heard about all these scandals of you know, senior monks in Thailand, some forest monks. And I said, I have to be honest with you. So it's the time that I give my confession. And I told everybody with my head down, I said, I confess to spending some of the happiest times of my life in the, other, in the loving arms of another man's wife. We hugged, we kissed, we loved e each other intensely. <laughs> people were shocked. A couple of people, they got up from their seats and were heading for the door. Oh, not Ajahn Brahm as well. And I said, it's true, I spent some many hours in the loving arms of another man's wife. That woman was my mother. She was married to my father. <laughs> in the loving arms of another man's wife. I was telling the truth. <laughs> and the people going out the door came back in again, laughing their heads off. <laughs> so anyway, you've got to be careful of you know, what is said and not misunderstood, understand it. Okay, I think that's enough. I should stop speaking now. Okay, very good. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs>